welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, the format for today's episode is slightly divergent. This episode was recorded at a fundraiser for Kiss the Ground in front of a live audience at Commune Topanga. Now, Kiss the Ground is a fantastic non-for-profit focused on regenerative agriculture. And you may also be familiar with the eponymously named documentary on Netflix narrated by Woody Harrelson. Now, this episode features three contiguous interviews that I conducted at the event. My guests are policy director Finian Makepeace, regenerative rancher Donaga Markagard, and actor-environmentalist Ian Summerhalder. Now, the goal here was to explore multiple angles to reify a more sustainable agricultural system that yields healthier food. So Finney and I talked through the lens of legislation, specifically the Farm Bill, which is being re-legislated next year in Congress. Donaga walks us through the regenerative techniques that she employs on her 10,000 acres of managed land. And Ian addresses advocacy, essentially how we use our platforms to spread the concept of regeneration. So we begin with Finian. Now Finian Makepeace is the co-founder, policy director, and lead educator of Kiss the Ground. He is a renowned presenter and thought leader in the field of regenerative agriculture and soil health. He is an expert on the Farm Bill and these days is spending quite a lot of time on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., building bipartisan support for a more regenerative Farm Bill in 2023. Now, Commune also produced a course with Finian titled Soil is the Climate Solution, and you can sign up for Finian's course for free for five days at onecommune.com slash soil. And of course, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite pod catcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you our first guest, Finian Makepeace. Okay, welcome to uh, um, a little cabin in the woods with no internet um, called Commune. Uh, you're very brave or very stupid to come here. <laughs> <laughs> Megan will let in all the naked hippies now. No. Um, we uh, we uh, are here on a Sunday at a place called Commune. And, um, and in a way, I think of this as a communion. Um, not that Finian will be placing wafers on your tongue in any way. Uh, <laughs> although I like that idea of... Uh, the Holy Eucharist, but the actual um, literal definition of communion is the intimate exchange of ideas, often spiritual ideas. And uh, I think that the topic today has a very spiritual component to it. Um, so I'm absolutely thrilled to be working with this just unbelievably inspiring group called Kiss the Ground. 
and that's why we're here today, to, um, to support their work and to learn from them. Um, they are on a mission to build a movement to awaken people to the notion of regeneration. That, uh, that we can renew, that we can restore um, that nature when unimpeded has the ability to heal itself. And, uh, um, and we're going to explore this idea, this notion of regeneration from a number of different angles. Okay, Finian. So, we have a sense of the problems across soil health, human health, planetary health, uh, socio-political culture. You know, um, there's 90% of the people in the United States have some sort of metabolic dysfunction. Um, mm -hmm. 60% have one chronic disease. 40% have at least two chronic diseases. So we know human health is on this decreasing spiral. We know that, I mean, many people say, and I think it's, it's referenced in the movie, that we have somewhere between 55 and 60 harvests left. Yeah. Um, just we don't have to turn our head. I mean, it's election day on Tuesday to see the vitriolic invective of our politics. Um, and of course, we can tick off every issue down the line as it pertains to climate change, global warming, deforestation, ocean acidification, on and on and on mm -hmm. and on. But we're here to talk about solutions. Yes. So why regenerative agriculture? Why is that a solution to so many of these problems that I just enumerated? It's a great question. I think it, it's a question that all of us should be thinking about. And hopefully with, with this idea emerging, more people will be connected to the size of this opportunity. Um, I would say in my late 20s, I was afflicted with every option I was looking at, Jeff, was a matter of how are we going to go off the cliff slower? Hmm. That's what I was looking at. And I was pretty knowledgeable about what solutions were on the table as far as combating drought, flood, you name it, all the things you just named as well. But when regenerative ag, uh, especially the focus on rebuilding soil health, came into my brain, it was so shocking that, first of all, I hadn't really heard about it, and it had been vacant from all the other things I would learned about into my late 20s, uh, but also the power of it. When you start to dissect kind of the silos of how we've been looking at, oh, CO2, how are we looking at flooding or how are we looking at this, like these problems, the earth, the very um, unbelievable uh, capacity of the earth to function inside of the kind of the most tremendous or crazy events, whether it's flooding or drought or whatever, the earth has created this capacity to handle it. And so when you learn about regeneration, rebuilding soil health, it starts to fall into place where you start to see some of these just opposite scenarios where you're saying, well, this land is degraded, therefore it's not functioning, right? Something that's degraded, it's broken, right? Mm -hmm. No longer serves how it was supposed to, no functions how it was supposed to. So if something happens to that land, like a three-inch rain event, let's say, 
a broken piece of land isn't going to infiltrate or absorb that water. Right. It's not working. The water runs off, takes with it topsoil, takes with it chemicals, takes all this pollution, etc. Versus land that works, land that's functioning, a three-inch rain event infiltrates instantaneously. That's like a sponge. The soil has built itself to handle that. As nature's technology, we say, 500 million years of research and development. Hmm. That's a lot of R&D to figure out how to make the, the best out of any water that's fallen, uh, maximize all the solar energy that you can, utilize the best to your ability. How are you going to recycle nutrients? Nature's been working on this for quite a long time. So the, the concept of regeneration, rebuilding soil, when you look at it at scale, you start to have, you know, what, what Woody says in the trailer is, I hope you're not going to give up because once you grasp mm. this, we're looking at a solution that isn't the, the, the simple, we have to go off the cliff slower. This is actually, we get to go the other way. Humanity can, and arguably is the only species aside from beavers and a couple others, that right now can actually be the species that turns us back working with land, stewarding land to rebuild our soil. The soil function, the soil's ability to do what it's designed to do is why we called kiss the ground, kiss the ground. It is just that unbelievable that it takes you to your knees. You want to kiss the ground. There's a hundred ways to do it, but yeah. maybe one solution in this particular case. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, when you think about all the boxes that it checks, it sequesters carbon, so we're, it, it, it contributes to nutrient-dense food, yeah, which is, of course, what we see now is nutrient-deficient food. And if you want to look at the knock-on impacts of nutrient-deficient food, well, you can draw a straight line from that to many of the chronic diseases that we're looking at, whether that's... Well, here, yeah. Here's the thing on, on the nutrition side of it. Biology. This is just an easy way to look at it because it's a really rough number, but over half of all nutrients, macro and micronutrients that your body needs are only made available in soil That's right. when microbiology makes them available for the plant to uptake. So if your soil's dead, when your microbiology is not active, you're eating food that literally can't have the nutrients that your body needs. So when our soils are healthy and alive, thriving with life. More microbes can live in a teaspoon of soil than there are people on planet Earth. Yeah. When you have really dynamic living soil. So those microbes are making those nutrients available for your body that your body needs for the plant to uptake. So when we don't have healthy living soil, we literally taste food that tastes like cardboard. Why does it taste like cardboard? Because your tongue says, this is not what you want. This is not filled with the nutrients your body needs. Yeah, we co-evolved over, yeah. as you say, 500 or hundreds of millions of years, these adaptive mechanisms. Well, soil, 500 million years, but yeah, not us. But, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> we a couple hundred million. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and we could geek out on this for, for some time. So but when time. you begin to over-apply uh, herbicides that then block the generation of certain essential amino acids, for example, in the yep. plant, like yep. the shikimate pathway, and I'm talking specifically about the active ingredient in, in Roundup, Roundup yeah. glyphosate, well, we need these essential amino acids. Uh, our body does not make them endogenously. We need to get them yeah. exogenously from the foods that we eat. And if we are applying certain chemicals that block those pathways, well, then we are depriving ourselves of the core building blocks of life. Yeah. 
And it is these very essential amino acids that then our gut microbes metabolize into things like serotonin. Yep, yep. And then we wonder why we have uh, mental illness and chronic depression. Yeah, and, uh, so. and, and, it, and it's so far across the board, just to, to set some of this straight right now. <sighs> Over half of our soils are heavily degraded, yeah. meaning they're lifeless and they don't work. So when we look at the solve being cut and dry of like, well, just do organic food. Hate to break it to you. Organic farms in California, those big ones, their soils are just as dead. Even though you're not killing yourself and the certain plants uptake with, with things like glyphosate, your soil's still dead. And so practices, why regenerative agriculture is a way out and a way up for all farmers to reduce their input cost, but also get off these, these chemicals that have been hijacked with is because you're rebuilding the actual essence of the soil itself, the actual way the soil functions itself. So you can take your way into fertility while reducing your input costs. It seems too good to be true, but that's what's happening across this country. Millions of farmers are waking up to this organic or conventional are seeing that this pathway to rebuilding their soil, rebuilding soil health is really what's gonna make the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, so give us just a little glimmer of hope here in terms of <laughs> the amount of acreage that is currently transitioning from conventional industrial agriculture yeah. now to regenerative agriculture. Well, those of you who have seen Kiss the Ground, the film out there, um, a couple of the stars of the film started an organization called Understanding Ag. Uh, and their firm, they only have about 24 employees. These are some of the expert trainers of farmers and ranchers across this country. Uh, they have gone to now helping transition over 33 million acres of land in the United States alone. Right now, organic agriculture is only on about 5 million acres in mm. the US. So already we're seeing in terms of massive uh, acreage adoption, especially with rangeland management, where you're getting regenerative transition happening because people are seeing the economic value of it. Yeah. They're seeing biodiversity gains, they're seeing watershed gains, meaning their, their rivers and their springs are coming back. Uh, and they're they're seeing the, the the very ability to pass this on to future generations, which matters a lot to so many farmers and ranchers that this legacy they have, their land's going to actually get better. Uh, they're seeing this promise, and that's that's part of what we're we're pushing here is that this isn't just a do good for the environment. This is a do good for your bottom line. Do good for what you you actually believe in. On, on, and, and it's it's a common ground issue on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk, uh, let's touch for just a moment on the economic component of it, yeah. because I think that there is a general misconception um, that going regenerative is going to reduce your yield. Yes. And so I know that Rodale Institute, for example, has studied this in some great depth, and I know Gabe speaks to it specifically in the movie. But can you talk about the economic impact on farms and farmers uh, in connection with this transition from conventional to regenerative. Yeah. Uh, in a little while, we're, in a minute, we're going to see a testimony from Rick Clark, but you'll hear there very clearly. Uh, 7,000 acres, he's saving $2 million a year on input cost. Mm. People have gone across this country, yield, yield, yield. It's been the big message for farmers. Stretch your farms at the whole push of the 80s and 90s in farming in this country. And unfortunately, that lands on the farmers and ranchers because the expectation is to keep pushing yields, your soil fertility is going down, your right. inputs costs just keep going up, yeah. plus the actual cost of the inputs themselves are more expensive. Uh, and obviously we said that Ukraine war in yeah. Russia, now we have literally three to 4% increases in totality of those inputs 
they were already going up before, Jeff. So yeah. what we're seeing right now is unless we can take people on a route of reducing their inputs, maintaining their yields, we don't have a solution. That's why regenerative is so important is that it literally is showing farmers the way to do that with the right education. And it also gives them more agency and control over their own inputs, right? A hundred percent. And yeah. that's where you're getting farmers who've been so hijacked again into this buy, yeah. buy, buy, and make sure they have everything they need. And so the farm bill push that yeah. we're getting towards. Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me get into that because I, I think that we're gonna, over the course of the day here, approach regeneration from a number of different angles. So the legislative one, yeah. um, more specifically as it pertains to practices and protocols, and then advocacy, because not every single person is going to be um, at congressional hearings like you or be a farmer. Um, so let's start specifically with um, legislation and the farm bill. So. What is the Farm Bill, just kind of on a broad basis, and then we'll get into why we should care about it and how you are working to create new prioritizations within the Farm Bill. But let's just start yeah. with what is it? The Farm Bill is a massive uh, omnibus bill that includes quite a lot, but the, really the origin as well as the intention of the Farm Bill is to make sure that uh, both our, our natural ability for our land to function isn't completely gone. Uh, it was created during the Dust Bowl, which was saying, wait, we right. might lose the validity of our farmland if we don't change. So that was a big intention. Also, the ability for farmers to have market, to be able to not you know, hijack, hijack themselves from price gouging, et cetera, to be able to, to have a withstanding of that. So we have a, you know ability for farmers to actually keep selling products. Um, but then it also includes things like SNAP for, for people to get uh, foods uh, who are food insecure or economically disadvantaged to be able to access to food. But there's so much more in that, everything from research and, and many other things. But this bill, by and large, if you want to know what the farm bill, why it's so important, is it is the bill, $856 billion worth of a bill that's dictating how and what we, how our food is grown and what we're eating and what our country is asking of our farmers and ranchers to produce and sell. So this bill based on subsidies and so many other things that come from our tax dollars is what's telling our farmers and how and what they're doing, whether or not we're gonna be continuing to lose 5.6 <coughs> tons of topsoil per acre per year. That's mm. four pickup trucks full of topsoil leaving every single acre of farm and ranch land in this country right now. Are we gonna continue down that trend and the taxpayer's dollar paying for it or are we gonna to start to go towards regeneration? And we're saying if with, with shifts in the prioritization not even necessarily more money, shifts in what's being prioritized through that farm bill can have a rapid uh, expansion of how much funding is helping farmers to build their soil back. And we're seeing this, this as a common ground solution that is possible right now. So the farm bill comes up every five, five years? years? Five years, yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I think you mentioned it was first instituted, I think in the 30s um, uh, by FDR. And we were talking earlier about this unbelievable clip in the movie that you guys must have been just jumping up and down <laughs> with joy when you found with FDR specifically talking about soil conservancy. Um, but, you know, we had in our history less than 100 years ago, a massive dust bowl that was the result of plowing, of overplowing, and um, and uh, it, 
It takes us a long time to learn lessons. <laughs> well, we hope we have, yeah. we have to learn lessons. I think a lot of us have to learn them more than once. And yeah. And now, so the Farm Bill, uh, like you said, the overwhelming majority of the allocation um, from a from a monetary perspective is for SNAP, is for food assistance. Is yes. that right? So, like, I think I don't know what the total sum is. It's like four hundred eight hundred fifty six over ten years over billion 10 years. dollars, and yeah, yeah so seventy four percent of that is for SNAP. Yeah. So an overwhelming majority of it for SNAP, and uh, and I'm sure that there are things that we could do within the SNAP program to um, bolster yeah. um, regenerative agriculture. But then there's, I think what we often hover around is kind of the crop insurance and then also the commodity like subsidization. So what are some of the cash crops that are getting most of the subsidies in the United States? Well, I mean, our biggest crops are corn and soy and, and sometimes hay, but mostly corn and soy is our, our biggest crops here. And those crops, as most people know, aren't for food consumption, direct human food consumption. Some of it's going to animal feed, but what people miss most of the time is most of that corn is going for ethanol production, uh, which is alternate fuel production. But by and large, I, I like to give the example of Iowa right now. Okay. Iowa is, I believe, 85% farmland, mm. the whole state. It's the second biggest ag producer in the country. 90% of their food is imported. Get out of 30, here. 40 years ago, not the case at all. Over the last 30, 40 years, they've made it so that they're importing 90% of the food. They're almost a food desert state, but they're the second biggest ag producer in the entire country. That is where we're at right now. We're, we're so focused on commodities and corn and soy and subsidizing those things so that farmers have a place to sell them overseas, but it is not a productive mm. way to go forward at all. Wow. So let me just make sure I have that right. So 85% of, of the, the land, land in, in Iowa, Iowa is, in farming, is, yeah. is farmland. Yeah. And they're growing primarily cash crops that are subsidized, GMO corn, and that's largely being used for animal feed ethanol. and ethanol. So we've basically decoupled the livestock from the crops, and now we're growing this uh, Roundup-resistant corn and shipping it off to feedlots, yeah. essentially. And you're basically missing the opportunity for both local markets to emerge and for healthier food options to be a bit available. So if you're importing back 90% of your food, the processing and the packaging and the, the contaminants in that food, as you, as many of us here know, is not good. It's not healthy. So yeah. then in terms of having human health stuff, when you talk about SNAP with, with food assistance stuff, there are so many ways that in procurement, we can start to say, wait a minute, are we actually supporting regional regenerative food systems that are good mm -hmm. for the farmers and the ranchers economically, but also getting the people of the states of this country better food, no matter what monetary ability they have. Yeah, and that's that's what's it's kind of sick, right? I mean, it's it's beyond sick. We are killing ourselves and our soil uh, very quickly with our current system. Yeah, and so of this eight hundred and fifty some odd billion dollars, so seventy five percent to SNAP. You know, seven to ten percent kind of cut up in these other insurance nine percent, seven percent for conservation. But totally, just to throw it back here of the reality. So FDR says we got to save our soil, right? Let's make the farm bill. That was the number one priority. Let's not lose all our soil. We did a calculation. It's a little bit rough, but about one percent of the total eight hundred fifty-six billion dollars is going towards helping farmers and ranchers rebuild their soil. Mm. So you're saying, wait a minute, the, one of the main original intentions was to make sure our soil doesn't 
erode. We're still losing 5.6 tons of topsoil per acre per year. What if we move from 1% to 3 to 5% of, of that funding actually helping farmers and ranchers rebuild their soil? Yeah. It's not the entire Titanic shifting, but it's allowing us to get on this track. And we're saying we can even do it without additional expenditures. Yeah. We just have to prioritize and focus. And that's what the Regenerate America campaign, we said, all right, we have an incredible opportunity here with the Kiss the Ground film, this entire movement coming together, coalescing over the last 12 years, the ramp up of people knowing about this. We were seeing after the film came out, countless people with just so many aha moments. I mean, yeah. you'll see in a second, the chairman of the House Ag Committee got his aha moment from the Kiss the Ground movie. And so, so many people around the world from business to thought leadership to, to government were having the aha. We said, wait, if we combine our efforts, our abilities at Kiss the Ground and others to the people who've been leading soil policy in DC for years with the uh, other indigenous and, and, and BIPOC groups who are leading on, on the front on the ground and then the farmers and ranchers who are also leading in this, what if we create a collective voice that hasn't really been heard before in DC and say regenerative agriculture has to be prioritized in this next farm bill? Because if we wait another five years, that's what's, it's super, yeah. I got two kids and we can't wait any longer. Yeah. We have to do this now. If we don't start this trajectory and show and prove that the, the country is supporting farmers and ranchers like they never have to rebuild their soil, we're gonna miss an incredibly important opportunity. So Regenerate America was really born on the premise that soil is our common ground. We are in a polarized situation in this country. Uh, the leaders of regenerative ag are from every spectrum uh, of the political sphere and other. They're coming together. Yeah. They're crossing bridges. We're all working together on this front. I work with count. I'm not a Republican. I work with countless Republicans on this event all the time. We can do the same thing in Congress, and that's what's so amazing is we're actually seeing tremendous results in the Senate and the House of of bipartisan leadership that's emerging on this topic, and people are getting it. And there's that's the opportunity. It's it's so massive yeah. because people are seeing this and saying, "Wait, this is an economic thing." This is an environmental thing. This is gonna allow me to fish and find deer and wildlife in my fields, and or this is gonna help save biodiversity. Whatever, whatever one you wanna call conservative uh, things people care about or, or liberal, the regenerative thing is a common ground solution like no other. And that's that's what we're standing on, is that that's, that's a possibility and it, it's happening already. Yeah, and there, there's no political cloak that one has to wear to have this moment of Satori, no, right? No. You're like, Chocolate does go well with peanut butter. Like, oh my God, this idea has come. Like, when did the Reese's peanut butter cup like come out? It was like, oh my God, well, this can bring Republicans and Democrats together. No, yeah. but um, <laughs> um, but this is this is the the Reese's peanut butter cup of 2022. There, there you have it. That's uh, the, that's the, <laughs> um, and um, well, maybe this is a good moment. Yeah, because, let's... To, to to see because this is uh, chairman of the agriculture committee, right? And his name is David Scott, right? Yeah, out of He's Georgia. He's from Georgia, yeah. right? And, and uh, he got inspired by the film. And this, what you're going to see is the first ever hearing on regenerative agriculture ever in the United States. And uh, we had our farmer from our Farmer Leadership Council, Rick Clark, testify here. And uh, yeah, you'll see the clip. Let's show it. All right. Soil health. This is what is so important today. Soil health is critically important for American agriculture and rural communities. Kiss the Ground, an extraordinary film that opened my eyes 
to much of what I was only dimly aware. Our fourth witness is Mr. Rick Clark, and he is testifying on behalf of Regenerate America. My name is Rick Clark. I'm a fifth-generation farmer from West Central Indiana, and we farm about 7,000 acres of row crops. This is urgent and it's critical that we have bipartisan action on the topic at hand today. The witnesses here today do not represent the diversity of regenerative farmers and ranchers. We are especially missing voices of indigenous leaders and farmers of color. American farmers are the most productive in the world, but we have to acknowledge the condition our soils are in. 5.6 tons per acre per year of soil are leaving our fields. Adopting soil health practices can slow down and reverse the degradation of soil. Regenerative agriculture can be incorporated into any farming operation and be far better for your bottom line. After decades of heavy tillage on our farm, a one-inch rain event created so much erosion on our farm, I knew it was time to do something different. Like thousands of farmers, I started cover cropping through Equip. On our farm, we have currently reduced diesel fuel consumption by 50%, chemistry and fertility by 100%, and based on regional input spending averages, we are saving $1,957,000 annually. We had yields that were increasing year over year, and our stability within the system had gone from a yield variance of 30 bushels in corn to less than five. My soils have water infiltration rates of 20 inches per hour, and the neighbors have an infiltration rate of one half inch of rain per hour. Our farm is more resilient against flood and drought. We are more resilient to supply disruptions, and we have a systematic approach that will be economically profitable and viable for generations to come. So how do we get there? We need to follow the six principles of soil health. One, context. Two, minimize disturbance. Three, maximize diversity. Four, living roots. Five, armor the soil. Six, animal integration. I am far down this path, but any farm can start and note it doesn't have to be organic. On behalf of Regenerate America Coalition, we are pushing to ensure the next farm bill robustly supports regenerative ag. Members of the committee, if you're looking for an agricultural method that increases farm profitability, is regenerative, better for the environment, and produces healthier food for Americans, then all you need to do is look beneath your feet. Thank you. You have really opened our eyes to what we need to certainly address. And um, Mr. Finnegan Makepeace did an extraordinary job an extraordinary message about the urgency, the need for us to kiss the ground. Oh man, get out of here! Get out! So yeah, it's <laughs> come on, man. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. Start be humble. Starting you know? from a garage in Venice uh, with Ryland and, and Karen and some others, and Darius, I think, was early on. It is incredible to see. Yeah, I mean that's Believing a real that, audience. I mean, we believed it. That's what's that's what's at the heart of this is that we saw that we had the aha moment, and I think one of the the really fundamental problems right now is that, you know, we're pretty polarized and we have a lot of disagreements, but 
believing that this is available for people to see and have the aha moment, there's a lot of evildoers, whatever we want to call it out there, but unless we open up to everyone can change, everyone can have an aha moment. Again, I was 28, 29 years old, thought I knew what there was to know about climate. You know, you and I like both are geeks and learn stuff, but my friends were like, hey, they were always asking me what the deal is. I had no idea. So when I start, we started this, it was like, we had no idea. Al Gore had no idea. Yeah. So many of these big leaders and the only famous environmentalist who knew about this 12 years ago was Vandana Shiva. Mm. Like literally you Google famous environmentalist. She <laughs> was the only one who knew. Yeah. This is why this idea is so powerful, Jeff, is because people are seeing it, people are getting it. And that's where all of us are advocates. I know I'm talking about legislation. We do have to change the farm bill. It is the beginning of something big. We can inspire other countries. We already are to do the same thing. But advocacy starts at every level with every different person. And you can interact with one person, you can interact online, you can do whatever. But believing that people can get this and that nobody's, nobody's too far gone. This is an idea whose time has come. And that's where we stood in that, in that vein. And we started in Ryland's living room and garage, but we said, if it happened to us, it can happen to anybody. And that's really what, why that is happening, I think, is because we, we opened it up to anybody. It wasn't like, oh, only these cool people can get it. You know, yeah. we hung out with a lot of cool people who could get it and they didn't know either. So, well, yeah, never doubt what a small group of engaged citizens can accomplish. Right. And it, everyone has a role yeah. within the movement. I mean, you can be a geeky scientist, you can be a rancher, you can be an advocate, you can be, I mean, Ryland is the ultimate connector of all time. I mean, this guy, yeah. he never resists Mike and Arisal always fungi. persists. His middle, name is, his middle name is Mike Arisal Fungi. I mean, yeah, yeah. He's like water. He goes where anywhere he's needed. So that, um, that, I like that you said that because, you know, there are people like, what can I, I mean, you can do, you can be good at advertising and there's a farmer or rancher somewhere who's like, they can't get rid of their regenerative product. I mean, there's so many ways that we do need an ecosystem to move this forward. And we didn't come, we weren't the indigenous knowledge holders. We weren't the farmers and ranchers. We weren't the scientists. We said, we can champion. Yeah. At the very least, we can champion. So let's just talk about just a, a couple ways that we can shift the allocation of money yep. to further the cause of regeneration. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I want to be mindful of everybody's time and everyone. Yeah. But I think that... that you know, one of the things, you know, as I was reading through the six priorities that you have for and Kissagram has for yeah. Regenerate America, one of them that stood out to me was around education. Because, of course, I just assume, like, everybody knows this stuff. Well, especially, yeah. I think we assume it because you, you look at someone else's field and you're saying, oh, this is, farmers and ranchers must know this because they're farmers and ranchers. Right. Um, the, the people who in the NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service, USDA, they must know this because that's their job to know this, right? Uh, professors of soil science must know this because that's their job to know this. What I'm trying to say with, you know, Al Gore didn't know this is a, a barometer. Like we didn't know what mycorrhizal fungi was. For those of you who don't still, it's totally fine. Don't feel bad. We didn't know how glomalin was formed until 1994. That is literally the most, one of the most key ingredients to making function healthy, uh, healthy soil function happen. Mm -hmm. We didn't know about it until 1994. Like yeah. this is a, this is a curve we're on right now. And so, yeah, there, yeah. there's education 
for farmers, ranchers, but for the technical service providers, the people training them, we say that is a 20 year gap right now. And I'm saying that not as me as an advocate of this message, I'm saying that from the horse's mouth. The, the farmers and ranchers are like, we don't go there anymore because we're going to the YouTube videos of Gabe Brown and others right. because they're the front lines. We're saying, what if the education could both be disseminated to the people who are the trainers, but also the farmers? Why aren't we making that access possible for all of these people? Because there's a gap. We could say, wait, economically successful, ecologically successful in your first two years versus 20 years ago, well, this is going to take you 15 to 20 years to accomplish this. That was what it took before. We've learned yeah. so much. And, and, and the great Alan Williams, who you might know, is he says, what used to take us 15 to 20 years to do, we're now doing in three to four. Mm. We need to have people have access to the education that's going to get them the results of economics and ecological results in three to four years versus 15 to 20. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and the analogy I see is with regenerative medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where, perfect, perfect. you know, they just started teaching nutrition in medical school, like now. <laughs> and then you look at the provenance of chronic disease. It's all about food. Jeff, the, the course we first did here at Commune with you guys, people were learning who went to school for soil science. They were learning about soil aggregation from me, silly old soil advocate, <laughs> they went. They spent $70,000 to learn about soil and didn't know how soil aggregation happened. And that's what yeah. we're dealing with. We're dealing with the gap. So education. education. We need to make sure equity is absolutely front and center. We have disenfranchisement, of, of historical disenfranchisement pushing aside of so many farmers, especially farmers of color, for so long. That has to continue to be a trend that the USDA is, is focusing on. We have to make sure we're getting processing and equipment that needs this. You can't yeah. just magically turn your farm and ranch into regenerative if you can't process the goods from there and get them to market or have the equipment to actually make that possible. We need to make sure that's more accessible. We have to make sure that we're looking at the SNAP program and saying, how is that going to help farmers start having regional food uh, procurement? So they're saying, oh, I'm, this is where my food's getting sold to. I actually have a market now. And we have to look at lending and insurance. These are huge mm. buckets of the current farm bill. We're right. just for folks to get good drivers from Allstate, right? We all know about that, right? Where it's like you get a benefit. Right now, we're paying tax dollars to and subsidizing crop insurance. At 60% of crop insurance, farmers are able to go de degrade and deplete their soil and they get bailed out with crop insurance. Okay, whatever. That's, that's just how it is, let's say. But the farmers who are doing regenerative are having a harder time getting crop insurance Right. than the ones who are degrading their soil. That is like absolutely doesn't make sense in any frame. We're seeing bipartisan support in that as well. So there are so many places where we can say the needle can move towards helping farmers rebuild their soil. It can be economic for them and win. And we have this information. We can do it now. And it's it's seeing bipartisan support. Yeah. So when will this bill come up? It's obviously in 2023, but will yeah. they actually take it on? Probably. I mean, probably votes will be happening in fall of next year. So September, yeah. October, November of next year, 2023. But that means everyone's involvement now matters more than ever. Yeah. We're saying the coalition we have, we have over 100 coalition members, farm groups, organizations, businesses who have never really played in this field together before. We have countless people supporting this work. Thousands and thousands of farmers really excited about it. Now we say we go big on media and we go big on, on grassroots mobilization and team with countless groups in 2023 to say, we're going to propel this message forward. The farm bill is going to become something people say, I don't know everything about it, but I know that it's going to help the future for my children, my grandchildren, our rivers, 
uh, our food and water security. And by God, we can actually make this change happen. So. Mm. All right. All right, Finian. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for doing that. Okay, well, thanks for listening to that fascinating conversation with Finian Makepeace about the Farm Bill. Now, our second guest, Donica Markegaard, is a regenerative rancher and authors of the fantastic books Wolf Girl and Dawn Again. Now, Donica owns and operates Markegaard Family Grass Fed, raising grass fed beef, lamb, pastured pork, and dairy supplying the Bay Area with local nutrient-dense foods. Doniger and her team manage over 10,000 acres leveraging regenerative techniques. So here's my conversation with Doniger Markegaard. So this is Doniger Markegaard. I am currently reading her book, uh, Dawn again. Actually, I'm mostly listening to it, and my wife can vouch to it, vouch for it. We listened to it, I think, last night at 11 a.m., 1 a.m., and 3 a.m. <laughs> um, and uh, um, it is a wonderful, wonderful book. You're Thank a fantastic you. author, and just the imagery in it, um, and it brought up so many different ideas that I will save. Hopefully, if you will <laughs> indulge me another podcast some other time. Um, but uh, obviously you're an author, um, you're a mother of four, you lapped us, we have three girls, <laughs> so you have four, but we're both in that same age group. Yeah. Um, but we're here today really to talk about land stewardship and regenerative ranching, because that's largely what you do. Mm-hmm. So can you just scaffold our conversation with just a tiny bit of biographical um, information and just about to the, the scale of what you're doing on uh, on that level. Yeah, absolutely. So our family, uh, we steward uh, over 14,000 acres of coastal grasslands, and it's in uh, Ramatusha Ohlone, Kashaya Pomo, and uh, Coast Miwok territory. And it's these beautiful, diverse grasslands. They're actually uh, there's more plants per square meter in these coastal grasslands than there are in any other grassland type in North America. Mm. They're the most biodiverse and they're also the most threatened. And so I got into regenerative ranching because I care deeply about all life. I have um, this relationship with species where I view them as my kin. So I care for the wolves and the grasses and the soil. And so I chose this route because I felt like I could make the most difference if I took part in the regeneration of of life. And uh, I like to say I learned how to ranch from the wolves <laughs> because I spent seven summers uh, in the Frank Church Wilderness in Idaho, the largest tract of wilderness in the lower 48, following packs of wolves. And I learned how they, as predators, moved the large herds of elk, the prey species. Mm, yeah. And so I like to describe regenerative agriculture as movement. 
and industrial agriculture is more stagnant, like mm. rigid, right? right? And straight rows and monocultures and 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 yeah, this rank on yeah, rank, yeah, vision exactly rank, yeah. yeah. So those kind of words come up: stagnant, yeah. rank, oxidizing. Yeah. And whereas with when you introduce wolves back into uh, the landscape as that keystone predator, they move everything around them, right. right? And so they move the, the large herds of elk, which in turn move the grasses and all of that, those plants and promote more biodiversity and more growth. And that growth helps to draw down that carbon into the soil where it belongs. So then those plants are moving that carbon, that energy flow down into the soil. Mm. And so, as a regenerative rancher, my role is to be part of that dance. Yeah. And it's it's really amazing. It's it's like my days out on the land with the animals and with all of the life that I relate to as kin is it's I, I feel fully alive in that. So yeah. I know that I'm <laughs> fully living my passion. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you are a student of nature's foundational wisdom and intelligence, and then you're leveraging its flow. Like, for example, the bison used to be moved across the grasslands naturally mm -hmm. by predators. Yeah. And then that would essentially uh, contribute to the richness and, and the healthfulness of the soil, and they would be kept moving along. Well, now we don't really have that same sort of ability to move mm -hmm. uh, livestock um, or elk or whatever along in with predation, but you're finding ways to essentially mimic that, right, through how you're stewarding or how you're managing grazing. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And humans have always played that role as tending to the wild. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, it's more important now than it ever has been to tend to that wild. You know, we're seeing so much devastation as a result of climate change. So it's time for us to unlearn and relearn, you know, mm. what it means to be wild. And uh, I was adopted by a, um, a Lakota holy man who was raised outside of missionary schools. He didn't learn English until he was in his 20s. And he was uh, raised where, you know, they all, they all went underground with their uh, spirituality. And so he was raised by his grandmothers. And uh, he, you know, he taught me that in order to really live a fulfilled life, you first need to learn from the animals. Mm. And you need to learn to live like a wild animal in order to learn who you, who you really are as a human being. And also to have that, what he called wowa uh, unshila, which is a deep, deep caring for all life. And from that deep caring, you can develop your your purpose because we were all put on this planet for something, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he would always say to me in my sort of teenage, you know, get caught up in my head or in my emotions or get stuck. It's like, 
just get up and do something. Like make yourself <laughs> useful. You know, chop wood, carry, carry water, water. Like make yourself useful. So that's what I feel like I'm doing now. Is like every day I wake up. It's like how can I be of use to the planet and to the future generations?、Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I'm sure you're very aware of. The ramifications of the extirpation of the wolves in Yellowstone,、mm-hmm. for example, that happened in the early 1900s,、um, where、uh, where we began to kill all the wolves off, and we have this tendency as humans,、um, this kind of Newtonian physics approach to like finding a problem, and then. Um, reducing it to one thing and then trying to hit it over the head with a hammer. It's like you know the way that we prescribe prescription drugs or whatever. You can kind、yeah. of see this over and over again. Oh, so we're just going to eliminate all of the wolves, and that'll solve you know the issues that we're having.、Um, but of course, you know, life isn't that simple. And there's this in the Yellowstone, anyways. It created this what is known as this trophic cascade. Where then, okay, well, the elk that used to be sort of uh, uh, relegated to the more graded areas of the park or of the forest started then coming down into the grasslands, and then you know when they're unchecked and they don't have a predator, they were eating away、mm-hmm. at all of the and the right the flora, areas and, then, and all、yeah. of that stuff, and then all of a sudden we saw like massive mass erosion and desiccation、mm-hmm. of of the, of the forest floor and the loss of other keystone species, and it took. Fifty, sixty years、um, to reintroduce the wolves, and then、mm-hmm. nature had an amazing way of actually healing itself pretty quickly. Absolutely, yeah,、um, absolutely, and that's what's so amazing with regenerative agriculture is nature is incredibly resilient, and we're seeing amazing results. I mean, we're we we don't really know the potential because this is all just just happening right now. Like Finian said, we're just learning so much, and we're just learning the science. But we've had,、uh, you know, we have we've had science along with our. Uh, ranching and holistic management for about ten years. We've been、uh, we transitioned to 100% grass fed about 18 years ago,、mm. and then、uh, scientists started to pay attention. Biologists, ecologists, about how、uh, bird life was increasing,、uh, plant biodiversity was increasing. Uh, water infiltration was increasing. The land was becoming more resilient, and then、mm. this whole thing came. You know, and that was before the whole big like, oh, soil can store carbon, right? It was just、yeah. about habitat and bird life. And when we bring animals back onto the <laughs> land and move them and graze them、uh, in a way in harmony with nature, we're providing that. Habitat that these grasslands evolved with, the species evolved with, those grassland birds evolved with, and oh, and it sequesters massive amounts of carbon. Like,、uh, <laughs> wow! Our most、yeah. recent、uh, soil test results came back with a 12% increase in soil organic carbon,、mm-hmm. and it just keeps going. It,、yeah. And、uh, we don't really know what the cap is.、We're, we haven't we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> so、uh, 
And, and it, it, it's really exciting. I didn't yeah. really know when I got into ranching that it would be this exciting, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's kind of cool. I'm sitting here and, uh, you know, get to be on your podcast and, you know, I'm just, I'm just that, some girl. That is but... the least of your accomplishments. Um, so, um, so I want to get in specifically to some of the techniques that are used in regenerative agriculture. And let's just start with um, like managed grazing, for example. Um, can you, because we, we've famously decoupled the animal from the cropland, right? And so now what we have is uh, these, uh, you know, this overabundance of GMO corn over here that then gets to get shipped all the way across the country to some CAFO that is producing math massive amounts of methane. And, you know, we could go down yeah. the knock-on impacts of, of CAFOs for some time. But we've the essential truth here is that we have decoupled these things mm -hmm. that naturally are conjoined, that are yoked. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so how, um, how does one strategically manage grazing um, to maximize soil health and eventually crop health? Yeah. Um, well, first off, you know, cattle are not meant to stand in a feedlot <laughs> eating <laughs> grains. You know, they're yeah. they're ruminants, and they uh, are, are designed to forage and and to graze. And so, um, the first off, just boycott big beef mm. and choose regenerative, grass fed, grass finished, um, grass finished beef. And so uh, these integrating livestock is is a key component to regenerative agriculture because it brings that fertility back. Mm. I like to use the example of uh, if you read the accounts of you know either the West Coast or the East Coast is we had massive amounts of pigeons on the East Coast was the passenger pigeons and on the West Coast fantail pigeons and so they would fly in such great numbers they would blacken the sky right and the same thing with bison and elk out here on these grasslands you know elk that uh, were you know their herds were thousands in the thousands you know right right here right around here mm. and what did all of those animals bring to that landscape right i mean they they brought a lot of mulching and mowing and mobbing and a lot of manure, a lot, a of, poop, lot of poop, right? A lot of poop. So what's in poop? <laughs> and so all that fertility, all that yeah. nutrients needs to come back and sort of kickstart this carbon cycle. Right. So if we take the animals out of agriculture, it would be like taking animals out of nature, right? There's no ecologically functional ecosystem devoid of animals. There should be no agriculture system devoid of animals. It's just like when we look at agroforestry, uh, it's all about diversity because you're going to have those natural predator-prey relationships to have the uh, balance. And so you're not going to have the pest problems you would in a monoculture. So having that uh, diversity uh, of, of species and just getting rid of tillage. With grass-fed beef, you do not need to till. 
Uh, we're all our beef is certified bird friendly by the Audubon Society, and uh, the Audubon Society uh, has taken it upon themselves to have their number one project is their conservation ranching work. Mm. Is partnering with grass-fed ranchers like mm. us to save grassland birds. Grassland birds are the mm. largest group of birds in decline. They've declined over 50%. Why? Because of till agriculture, mm. because of all that tillage. So you think about when you go to the source, go to the source of your food. I don't care what you eat. <laughs> Just travel to the source and say, what, what is this food leading to? Is it leading yeah. to more destruction and extraction and loss of habitat? Or is it leading to more life? Yes. Yeah, I mean, every interaction between an organism and its ecosystem can be adaptive or regenerative or maladaptive. Yeah. And so we just need to be conscious moment to moment of those choices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've spent a good amount of time up at um, a regenerative farm close to here up in Moore Park, the Apricot Lane Farms, yeah. which you might, probably are familiar with. And so I've been able to witness how um, livestock move around the farm. And, you know, at least how they do it is they create these kind of paddocks that are maybe an acre or something. And, you know, the cows poop and the poop has like tremendous abundance of microbes. And, uh, and you know, the cows then kind of walk over it and like mush it into the ground. That's kind of the best yeah. <laughs> uh, word I could have for it. And then after, you know, a couple of days, the paddock is then moved somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then they, then they bring in the chickens yep. um, or the mobile hen houses. And then the chickens, you know, peck at the manure mm -hmm. and kind of spread it out all over the place. And then, you know, then they keep moving th these things around. Mm -hmm. And it's just absolutely like fascinating and they actually have it on like a little computer screen yeah. <laughs> they can like move it around and stuff like that which i'm sure that you know you you start to look at it that way too which is this this very intentional form of managed grazing right mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's very intentional and you know i'm i'm gonna uh sort of emphasize that education as well that that finian mentioned is that when you look at indigenous peoples from all around the world they had something in common an incredible knowledge of place, right? That was like kindergarten, <laughs> right? They knew every single plant, every single animal. They knew what was gonna kill them. They knew what was gonna give them medicine, right? And they knew how to interact. And so we've lost that, right? And it's up to us to reconnect and figure out, okay, how we all have the basic human right to have access to nature. Mm. And so in our own way, we can look to nature for that, but we, we need guidance, we need mentorship. And it's, it's gonna take so much more than uh, just, you know, these efforts here or there. I mean, rural America is crying out for help right now. And when I sit across the table from a farmer and I hear the struggles and I, and I hear what they experience <clears throat> every day, 
it's, I mean, no wonder you, yeah. you know, the suicide rates in farmers and that the, the next generation is leaving the farm. No wonder. Yeah. So what what can we do here, you know, in in California or in these centers where we have, you know, incredible access, right, to whatever we want, you know, with health and with education, uh, with diversity, and what can we do to sort of infiltrate these other areas that are really really crying for help? Mm. Yeah, when I um, think of like tillage specifically and uh, there is an amazing graphic in the kiss the ground movie that shows the plumes of co2 that enter the atmosphere during the months of april or mm. march april may when essentially there's typically uh, in conventional industrial agriculture a tremendous amount of tillage and what that is is releasing a lot yeah. of carbon from the soil and so it's really um, about finding both uh, wisdom that's indigenous and also marrying that in some way with technology and innovation. So you don't have, you can plant seeds without tilling, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there is, there are now, um, what are those called? They're like a kind of seed like a drills. Drill. And, yeah, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. That, that um, I saw Gabe Brown, I believe, has yeah. one of those now yeah. where he can go now and instead of tilling up the mm -hmm. field, he's actually planting seeds yeah. uh, in a way that's non-destructive mm -hmm. and maintaining the carbon in the soil. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's so many techniques that we we can use. Whatever uh, we're growing, whatever we're raising, if we can shift to perennial agriculture. So, mm. uh, you know, what's so amazing about the grasslands that we steward is uh, they're home to these incredible native perennial bunch grasses that their roots grow so deep. Mm. And even in the driest of drought, uh, as long as we maintain that soil cover, which we talked about, out, um, in the in the film is uh, then then you have that environment where you're going to retain moisture the microbes are going to be happy and you're going to have that resilience even in the face of the mega droughts that you know we're, we're up against right so cover cropped untilled land can mm -hmm. retain more water and is more microbe rich, is that right? Yeah, yeah, and for every 1% uh, increase in soil organic matter, you hold 20,000 gallons of water per acre in the soil. Like the soil is the ultimate sponge <laughs> <laughs> per acre, right? I mean, we were talking That's earlier nuts. about water water catchment. Yeah. Like soil's the best, the be best place to store your water long-term. And then that will be, you know, that will be then released and uh, those microbes will be happy. And, you know, you, you go in, in the driest time of year and you go through our grasslands and you, you know, kind of uh, scrape away the, the duff and it's, it's moist and it's cool mm. in there. It's a, it's a mm. good environment, so. How much, to what degree do you attribute sort of the difficulty of transitioning um, from conventional agriculture to regenerative agriculture to sort of cultural obstacles. So for mm -hmm. example, 
We are so used to seeing that postcard, like "Welcome、yeah. to Iowa," <laughs> with the rank on rank, you know,、um, fields of corn, and we sort of, in our mind's eye, have this vision of what a farm should look like. But if you look at like a regenerative farm full of like alfalfa and clover and buckwheat <laughs> cover crops, and like you know. If you don't know what's happening there, you're like,、oh, that looks a little sloppy. I don't <laughs> yeah, know what's、messy. going on over on Donegas Farm, but <laughs>、yeah. I don't know, it doesn't look so hot over there. Is there like a, a cultural barrier that we need to break through?、Uh- You know, I've I work with a lot of farmers actually all all around the world, and we think about、uh, you know what what we're eating. It's not all grown here. So if you know if if we're harming some ecosystem、uh, down, say you know in an area I work on the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica,、mm-hmm. which is one of the most biodiverse regions on the planet, like we need to think about that. You know, even though we don't see it, it's it's still happening, right? And so,、um, when I am actually on the ground with the farmers and the farmers that love their land, and it's actually really simple.、Mm. If it's just if it if it was just up to the farmer, it would be a really simple decision, right? To transition, like, oh yeah, this this isn't working. This is harming the farm workers. You know, there's there's chemicals. Like I visited this two、um, thousand acre rice farm、um, uh, at the mouth of the Zancudo River, and we mapped out a ten year regeneration plan. And they were using chemicals like you know paraquat that have been banned in the EU and in the US, and with with no protection. Right, the farm workers were applying this with no protection,、mm. and it was draining into you know one of the most Pristine, you know, the Golfo del Duce, which、mm. is such a pristine bay right there, and、uh, you know, right, right next to the, you know, one of the primo surf spots, right, where, where you know, people fly in from all over to surf. And、uh, so I was on the ground walking around with a farmer. I was like, "Hey, it's year one. You can cut chemicals 100 percent, yeah, and not lose a penny." If you transition those rice fields and people, you know, like this kind of is mind blowing, and they were doing this, they were transitioning fields over to cattle, and yes, cattle was part of the problem in the beginning of deforestation in the jungle. I totally agree with that, but they can also be part of the solution to transition that monoculture heavily. Uh, dependent on massive amounts of really harmful agrochemicals that are harming everything,、mm. they you don't need that for for cattle. You could cut the chemicals, grow diverse crops, graze the cattle, start to plant silvopasture, and eventually、mm-hmm. move that towards agroforestry and conservation. And so over over ten years, because things grow really fast in the tropics,、yeah. you could have this incredible diverse ecosystem that is corridors for the jaguars and the ocelots, and you could grow amazing food crops. You're just not eating white rice 
when you're, you know, which is actually being shipped to China, anyways.、Mm -hmm. So the cattle actually stay in the country and are being fed to the people that live there.、Right. So you know, those are things that it could happen. It is possible. And farmer to farmer, it's actually pretty simple. But it's the large corporations and it's the governments that need to step up and shoulder some of the risk. So don't ever、mm. blame a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> And what you're doing can serve as a model for other farmers, right? Yeah, and you know it was tough. It was tough for us. You know,、yeah. we we were one of the first in、uh, California to transition to 100% grass fed. Um, and it was just we had a small group of mom supporters. Like, yeah, I'll buy a cow. I'll buy a cow. And you know, from there, <laughs> it grew, and we're feeding. You know, so it was the moms yeah, that stepped up, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the moms, and yeah,、uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. And then it grew to、uh, you know, feeding thousands of people across the greater Bay Area、um, nutrient dense foods, and they have that direct relationship, and、mm -hmm. they know that. Even though they may not be directly tending the wild, they're indirectly tending the wild by sourcing from farmers or ranchers who have that deep knowledge of place and understanding and respect for all life.、Mm. Well, I'll never be a mom, <laughs> but I'm sure glad you are. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, those are my my two little girls running in the the trailer. They're, you know, just about as tall as me, teenagers now. But <laughs> amazing! What an、yeah. incredible way to grow up, and、um, an incredible、uh, gift that you're giving them. So, and you're giving us. Thank you.、Uh, thank you, Donna. Donna. Okay, thanks for listening to my chat with Donica. And last but not least, we have Ian Summerholder, actor, model, and environmentalist.、Uh, Ian has been supporting environmental causes for years, and in 2010 launched the Ian Summerholder Foundation. The foundation distributes funds and resources towards global environmental conservation. Green energy development, deployment, and education tools. And in 2011, Ian had his aha moment visiting Zimbabwean farmer and regenerative agricultural legend Alan Savory in Africa, and has since been committed to using his platform to raise awareness for regenerative practices. So here's my conversation with Ian Summerholder. Thank you, Donaga. Thank you, Finian. Thanks everyone for being here. This is what it's about, and it happens in these very small、uh, little environments that then spread. And this is what we have to be doing right now. Because、mm -hmm. I think if you listen to a lot of what Finian and Donaga just said, it's a very let's call it systemic problem. But we have a very simple and yet robust. Way of getting out of this,、mm -hmm. and relatively quickly. Yeah. So anyway, absolutely, it's, it's an honor, and and there's so many ways at it. So、yeah. you know, Finian is obviously addressing one angle, which is legislative policy. Policy. 
And Donaga has her hands in the dirt. <laughs> Literally. And feet and toes and, and soul. <laughs> and, um, but they're rare birds. You know, not everyone's going to be sitting in a congressional hearing. Not everyone has um, the balls to be a rancher. Um, and we all have a different calling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then that's what I'd love to excavate with you is how can, um, I'll just say this, everyone's on social media, what, you know, virtually. Um, everyone's their own media channel at this juncture. For better or for worse. For better or for worse. I've got to pull this out. I don't, I don't want it zapping me, and I have my wife and my kids, so you know how that yeah. goes. Once they well, you got to so be available. Yeah, so let's make it for, for better. And, I, and yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is that everyone can be an advocate and, um, and, uh, and educate the people within their own community, whether yeah. it's on social media or at a dinner table or in small groups. 100%. Um, and, um, but I, I want to maybe buttress that idea and any uh, insight that you might have on how one can leverage their own platforms to, in service of a cause with a little bit of your own biography. Um, and uh, I know that you were very involved in the cleanup in the aftermath of Deepwater Horizon. That, um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how that led you to Africa I believe in 2011, you went to visit this brilliant Alan Savory. Alan Savory. I think he's from Zimbabwe. The grandfather of it all. And, uh, and I'd love to hear what, how that trip served as an inflection point in your own journey. It's a great question. First of all, I'm super honored to be here. And, and all of us at Kiss the Ground are so grateful for all of the support. This is, this is what it's about. A great term, two operative words you just use are inflection points. Mm -hmm. I think for all of us, we have one or two uh, events that happen that are some of the more galvanizing things that have happened to us, regardless of what it (coughs) happened in those moments. And that kind of gets to that calling you were just talking about. And I don't mean in some like hoopla, arbitrary, like coastal elite way. I mean, I'm talking real stuff. Deepwater Horizon spill. And that was the beginning uh, for me. A very, very, very simple and yet huge human error. No one, no one else is to blame for that but humans. And a very, very, very poor governmental, political, environmental response. You only love what you know. My wife said, Nikki Reed, my wife says this all the time. But you only love what you know. And mm-hmm. so we have to fall in love with things like nature uh, to want to protect it. And that's what we have to have. Our, our, we have to do that. Our children have to do that. I fell in love with the Gulf of Mexico uh, because I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And for us, they're from Southeast Louisiana or Louisiana in general, that was my backyard. Mm. So the, and, and I, I've made peace with it now because I'm old enough to recognize, but you might see like 
my cheeks get a little red or my eyes get teary when I think about it because it is that thing where it's like losing a relative. To think of 207 million gallons of crude oil spreading out over this group body of water, I think one of the sixth, maybe seventh largest oxygen producing entity in the world, that was not okay, <laughs> to say the least. And so what happened was, is that I realized one thing. I've got to be a voice or an amplifier for those who don't have a voice because I found out about this in the parking lot of a Whole Foods the day we wrapped our season one of Vampire Diaries, which had become like the biggest TV show in the world. And I heard this, I said, what, what do you mean? Long story short, I had been living under a rock, trying to finish an episode of a TV show, pull up the news, what? Immediately called my dad, I need this, 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 and it's from the camera store. Because what I realized was, what I was hearing from, because my, my tuna charter is down there, and I called him and I said, Captain, what's going on there? And he goes, dude, it's a disaster. He goes, what the media is reporting is nowhere near what we're seeing. And I went, of course. So I went down there and I realized ex exactly what was happening. Hmm. So you went down there right in the aftermath. The next day, yeah, yeah. I drove, I, my car had gotten in Iraq, so I had a rental car and I literally ran to my apartment, grabbed my clothes, threw the cats in the car uh, and just phew, drove home. Hmm. Um, met my dad at a, he had picked up a bunch of stuff from a camera store, they were closed, and went straight to Grand Isle, where I grew up. Um, was smart enough to stop at the rental car place on the way and say, I gotta switch out this car. <laughs> and went, what? And I switched out this like big Mercedes SUV for a Prius, because I realized, everyone was saying, you cannot stay anywhere down here. There's worker, you can't say anywhere. So I knew I was gonna be sleeping in the car. Anyway, long story short, what I realized was, was the, in that moment, that you need amplifiers. And so many people don't have the wherewithal or the energy or the platform to be those amplifiers. So that's why I started the foundation. I started the Insermolator Foundation, which I did get to um, testify in Congress twice. Um, it was a wild experience. Thankfully, the, we passed the legislation both times. It was all about international species conservation, but hmm. we got that passed, um, which is the idea that every single species holds up the foundation of, 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 of nature. And by losing one, you offset everything, and that can be disastrous for food supplies, governments, everything. And so they don't want that. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, running a nonprofit, a public nonprofit, is a very, very difficult thing. Um, it's wildly litigious, um, and you're, it's quite prohibitive legally, right? And so I realized I, I want to be this voice, an amplifier of goodwill and voices that need to be heard. But then I realized something when I was in D.C. testifying. And the guy, the two people that wrote my testimony, congressional testimony, one of them went on to be literally the Secretary of Energy Security for the State Department. He was Senator Clinton, or Kerry's right hand, Clinton's right hand, and then ultimately uh, President Biden's right hand. And he and his partner, this woman, Jamie Shore, who's my political strategist in DC, they said, because I wanted everything had to be nonprofit. And they looked at me and said, Ian, 
you can do well and do good at the same time. You have the ability right now to build for-profit companies that will feed nonprofit initiatives because you're never going to get to solving the world's problems using nonprofits. It's too hard. So I realized that in that moment and I said, this is what I've got to do with this platform. I've got to start building companies, international, multi-billion dollar multinational companies. The only way I'm going to be able to put up or shut up. Hmm. So what we find ourselves in now, and I'm jumping around a little bit because I know time is, I want to be really respectful of everyone's time. You just mentioned everyone's on social media. The amount of commerce being done on social media is unbelievable. Every single one of us is a channel. You just asked that question, which is how do we do that with our specific channels? People are saturated with information. They're saturated. How do you break through the noise? Yeah. Like how do you actually reach someone? So I know there's a lot of controversy around this. It's been a, a, a buddy for a long time, but like Elon said this this week, he said, there's a lot of controversy around what's going on with this whole Twitter thing. But he said, advertising that's geared to you can be cool and unique and it can be content. Like we watch things that we love because AI or the algorithm tells us we like this because it knows us. And it's true. You go, oh, wow, that's cool. I love that commercial. Oh, I love that product. But we're in an algorithm and it's AI that's telling us what we love. So how do we all do this in our own specific ways? Authenticity, content, unfortunately. You can, you can, you can, you can speak from a, you know, um, a pulpit or a, or a pedestal, whatever people put you on. But it's so difficult to talk at people mm. because they don't want to hear it. You have to talk to people and it has to be so deeply personal to you without sounding like some coastal elite. Because we live on these, you know, kind of polarized coasts, the left coast and the right coast. And it's what Finian and it's what Rylan and Josh and Rebecca and I always talk about, which is this is about farmers. Right. This is about feeding ourselves. This is not about a bunch of coastal elite liberal hoopla. This is about nature. It's about science. Donegan gets up every morning on this ginormous, beautiful piece of land and understands how everything works. Works, And they're feeding thousands and thousands of people nutrient-dense food. We're at a critical tipping point where... Uh, our soils are so degraded, but we have this opportunity right now. So yes, so to answer that question, how do we reach everyone? Well, kiss the ground was a big step in the right direction. Yeah. And and I I will say this publicly now because I don't really, too worried about it. We should have won the Oscar. We should have. And it was a bunch of political stuff we don't need to go into, but this film will change the world, and it has. Listen to Chairman Scott. This is single-handedly one of the most powerful human beings in the United States of America. Walk into the U.S. Department of Agriculture, walk into that building, 
they speak the same language as our film. In fact, our film is what allowed them to speak this language. These yeah. are not concepts. These are huge steps in the right direction. So now, now, all right, so now we've got a little momentum. Now we've got a momentum. We've got the farm bill that's changing. Farmer Rick got up there and just blew everyone away. People were going, what? Yeah. So each and every one of us or people maybe that you represent or whatever it may be, we've got to get above the noise because everyone's saturated. And, 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 and it's, that, it's the feeling of doom and gloom. This is so powerful. And whenever people say like, yeah, you want me to watch your film? Totally. Well, done my film. I didn't make it. We all made it. The, the ray of hope that this film inspires, it's not even a ray of hope. It's like a solar flare gamma ray of hope. <laughs> you know what I mean? And when you tell people, because I don't know what else to tell them, like, you know, uh, it, it is in that hope when they see the film, it changes them forever. Mm -hmm. Because perception, once you change someone's perception and they see what's actually possible, they never go back. Yeah. They never go back. Yeah. I, you bring up a, a number of different points um, and I'll pull on a couple threads. In terms yeah, sorry of, about that. I just I know time is really no no no. This, just, this is this is know. this is this the real stuff because this is where most of us are going to be able to play. Most right. of us, like I said, are not going to be ranchers. We're not going to be regenerative ranchers. So what role can we play? Right. And I don't know about you. Well, you have twenty four million Instagram followers, so you might be in a different class. And I'm not sure what other platforms you're on, but I think a lot of people wake up every morning and they say what can i do yeah and then they get motivated for about 15 seconds and then they become overwhelmed um, in the face of the enormity of the problem and the default is just simply to go numb and get paralyzed right and then yep. as you point out there is this attention economy that's vying for our focus at every single moment of the day. Yep. And so how do we move from that place of overwhelm slash paralysis yeah. um, to actually being a part of this movement that is bending the arc of history? And I think, you know, for people with very large platforms like yourself, a lot of people are going to look to you because they admire you and they follow you. And the fact that you're viscerally connected to this issue and that you speak about it so authentically, that's going to be really powerful for a whole bunch of people. And then when I look at the film and I put myself in the seat of I'm a farmer, right? I'm probably more influenced by Ray and Gabe. <laughs> Totally. Than I am by you. Totally. And that's, of course, no offense. Well, the only part, yeah, they only know me because of their grandkids or their daughter. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and Did so, you see this movie? It's like, I've been doing it for years. But I, I suppose my point is, is that, you know, um, is that facilitating that connection between farmers is very important. And then also what you're doing, I guess, at, at the top of the funnel, if you will, um, 
is also massively important because the influence that you have has the ability to uh, to make people help people make choices. It may be simply what they put on the end of their fork three times a day. It's to give them. It's to give them. It's to give them small. Listen. You will hear every naval admiral, every major, anyone in the armed forces or any Fortune 500 or 50 CEO tell you the best way to start your day before your hit workout. <laughs> What's the joke? If a vegan does CrossFit, which one do they talk about first? <laughs> it's unbelievable. I'm that guy. I'm like, dude, you got to try this thing. It's like CrossFit. Is to just simply make your bed. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing you do in the morning. It's the first win. You set out to do this. You accomplish just one little thing. I've been working with a bunch of um, like noble laureate behavioral psychologists. And right now, there is a new term uh, called eco-anxiety. Yeah. Come on. 20 years ago, we weren't talking about this. And it's affecting about 27 million people in America. Think about that. This is a big number. The idea, like you just said, that you can, you work hard in school, you always think that you're taught that your education and your credentials are equally uh, equally um, in line with your earning potential or your salary or what your, epi- I mean, what your compensation is. I was about to say episodic compensation. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know. And I haven't been on screen in three years. I'm just so used to That's hearing okay. about You're deals. Well, yeah. just deals. You're well trained. But, uh, but, but it's not. So the idea that young people, particularly Gen Zs and millennials, are now sitting on this place looking at where we are as a, as a society and saying, I worked, I did everything I was supposed to do. I worked hard. I got great grades. I went in debt $187,000 in school because that's what I was told to do. And now I'm sitting here. There are no jobs. You know, there's shortages of food everywhere, yet there's food all over. The economy's in the toilet. The environment is falling apart. And then again, it creates paralysis. Yeah. How are you ever going to be inspired to get up and do something? Yeah. Or nihilism or self-destructivism. Exactly. I mean, I have three teenage girls. You know, when they hear like, oh, yeah, maybe 60 harvests left. Yeah. Uh, what is my expectation of them right. and their behavior at that juncture? So, so this is a really great thing about, this is a big humbling moment for all of us, which is us being able to ultimately manage our own expectations. Hmm. But it is when you think about that millennial or that Gen Z who's sitting there thinking, I did everything right and there's nothing for me. That's eco-anxiety. That's bad for our society. So how do you break through that? How do you start chipping away at that? So every morning someone gets up. It's not, there's just so many ways, but little tiny bits of hope. One thing you can do that makes you feel empowered throughout the day. My wife and I talk about this all the time with our five-year-old. Hey, cutie, turn off the light when you leave a room. Guess what? The dogs don't need it. They can see in the dark. 
when you're brushing your teeth, you turn that water off. We go through 600 million gallons a day of water. A lot of it's wasted because uh, people are used to hearing little things like that. So what happens is people start getting little wins here and there, little there, here and there, here and there. Mm. Now it starts getting into the big scalable stuff. Yeah. And which what we talk about all the time, which is when every school lunch or mall development or airline lunch or every potato chip uh, and or even 25% of them, every leaf of spinach, piece of broccoli, ear of corn comes from a regenerative farm, the world will shift on its axis. Mm. And all of these elements will start to dissipate. If you look at the great challenges of the world, and it gets into a lot of controversial stuff, but I mean, I've sat with some of the, literally the heads of people running the whole show globally, and they will tell you, drought, things like, look at Syria. Where do you think wars come from? They don't come from someplace because someone's just bored and they're like, ah, I just want to go blow these people up. No. Typically, it comes from some element of shortage that moves a group of people here, where then they clash with people here, and then it becomes a conflict. When we can start to stabilize our climate, it's not about just giving people healthier food in the United States. It's about, yeah. it's about mm. balancing an, a global climate. Yeah. And the great thing about it is, and this is probably just putting it into really simple terms, because I, I, I started a, a, a bourbon company, right? Again, it was authenticity and it was about quality, but it was all about stopping climate change, slowing it to a crawl. You do it through agriculture. And so, and we've had the most amazing partnership with Kiss the Ground, but when you're on these phone calls with the CEO or the heads of these giant companies, I'm talking Walmart, yeah. Kroger, 2,800 stores, Albertson, 1,700 stores, Target, you know, think of these numbers, Tesco, Codifor, all these companies. And you explain to them why we give portion of our gross earnings to regenerative agriculture. And we're going to build the truly first, most regenerative spirits company in the world. But they say, what is it? What is regenerative agriculture? Because it sounds so arbitrary. It's so simple. Regenerative agriculture is the use of planned grazing methods and using living, growing plants at scale to sequester enormous amounts of carbon dioxide. And when you do that, you are feeding all those microorganisms in the soil, healthier soil, healthier plant, healthier planet, revitalizing fresh water stores, better air, pulling, pulling farmers off of government subsidies, farmer prosperity. That yields higher tax base, better schools, better water. These are not polarizing, nor are they politicizing topics. Mm. So you always have a seat at the table. And just like Finian said, soil is our common ground. So it's non-polarizing. You can't politicize it. And that is what is so great when you see these people running like Fortune 50 companies go, that's it? Yeah. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. That's it. Yeah. Do you see how simple it is? I think is it's right there. I mean, creating fluency around the last hundred words that you just said might be the tipping point. And I think... Uh, um, fluency, you mean 
Well, creating a well, just a mass fluency right. and a mass understanding to the point where everyone can grok how right. simple that concept is that you just elucidated. Crazy, right? I mean, because it is right there, and I mean, obviously, yeah. common sense is not always so common, but you know, but common ground is. But common. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, and I think you know, to your point, um, just about feeling paralyzed and numb. You know, I think I heard the farmer Joel Salatin say that, that the human condition is simply the aggregate of a billion little choices. That is a beautiful thing. Yeah. That's amazing. That is, that again, it's about giving every one of us, it's those little bitty wins throughout the day. And then it all stems from households. It's Consumer behavior can change the planet. Yeah. Where consumers go, corporations go. Where corporations go, governments go. And we don't need to get into some BS political discussion, but we understand who really runs the show here. Um, and and it, it is what it is, you know? Corporations have billion, hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars a year. So how do you break through it? It's, of course, grassroots efforts, but I think, and this is something that Finian and, and, and Rylan and Josh and Rebecca and I talk about all the time, where farmers go, the world goes. Because this is a nonpartisan thing. And I, and I say this not to be crass, but we all know this. Money talks, bullshit walks. The economics of regeneration are higher. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think because what we've been, played in, what we've been playing into lately is, is the economics of, of agrochemical companies and fertilizers and what have you <coughs> have been able to sort of write the ticket of how we operate. Farmers are going to see this and they're going to realize, wait, why am I spending all of this money to have fallowed fields? And I'm looking at, once they break this down, they're going to start, they're going to, it's going to shift. And what's so cool about this and the numbers are, and this is going to blow everyone's mind. Of the, there's about a billion acres farmed in this country, right? And it's about 1 million people that control that pretty much, right? Yeah. Farmer wise, right? And it, don't give me uh, the numbers, it's about 70% of that are white males, 70 and over. 90%. 90%? Yeah. So, but, and that's when people get all grubby. Oh, wow, that's why we're in this position. They get all angry about it. I say, whoa, 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 that may be true for sure. But you know what I see there? Is opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. what does that tell you from a number? Let's just think numbers. In the next three to five years, maybe less, all those people, or majority of them, are gone. <laughs> and so it's true, they're gonna be retiring, they're gonna be passing away, they're gonna... So we're about to see the single greatest shift of agricultural power and influence and practices in this country that we've ever seen. Yeah. And it is going to come from indigenous, non-indigenous, black, brown, purple, orange, like it's just going to be this unbelievable <laughs> informational, you know, there's been an informational gap 
It's about to fill in. Mm. And that's why we're so, you know, there's so much doom and gloom out there, but I keep telling everyone like, yes, I know we're, we're in a very precarious situation, but because we work in the space, we have the data and we see where it's going. So it's not so doom and gloom. It's actually about to be, it's not necessarily a revolution. It's an evolution. Because when you start talking about revolution, people get all, you know, finicky. But it is this evolution that's about to happen. And it's a good thing. It's an amazing thing. And just remember, and this is what I, this is, you know, something I learned in, in D.C. Even the greatest enemies of the African savannah come together around the watering hole. The table is where decisions get made and talked about. And we can stitch this country and together and, 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 and normalize our climate through soil. And that's that simple. Mm. The yep. economics are there. The scale is there. Everything is there. And I think it will start to take away a little bit of that paralysis yeah. and start to open everything up. And I can't wait for that. Yeah. And I'd like... I'm going to target Donaga because my wife and I really want to take our five-year-old up to your farm. I just can't wait for her to run, well, provided you let us on your farm. (laughs) But I just can't, you know, she's such a farm girl and we just bought a farm that we're turning into a regenerative farm. But like when you see your children running around these farms, it's great. Not everybody gets to do that. So how do we bring that to the table of someone living in a food desert? Well, we do it through scalability. And we do it because it's there. And we can. Not can. Sorry. Let me rephrase that. We will. It's happening. Yeah. And I don't know anyone who would not rather pay a farmer than a pharmaceutical company. 100%. And that's what we're doing now. Yep. We have a a $4 trillion sick care business. Yep. And... What we need is a $4 trillion regenerative agriculture business. It's the craziest thing. And, and you know, I was unaware of that figure in terms of what the seismic shift, shift that we're looking at in terms of this next generation of would-be farmers. Pretty cool, right? It's amazing. And I think that that's, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to be realized um, yeah. in there. And, and you know, It's a I, special time. It's a tough time, but it is a special time. And all you have to do is talk to someone like Donaga to say, this is scalable. There is money to be made. And that's what gets people off of their, off of their couches and off of their high horses. Yeah. You know, sorry, it, it sounds like a very strange kind of um, <coughs> medical term, but like, I, when you have like a bacterial or fun, uh, fungal infection, particularly fungal, in the medical world, it creates a called a biofilm, right? I'm sure everybody's heard the term biofilm. When you're really sick, you're taking lots of things to break that biofilm down so you can take care of what's underneath, right? To kill the fun, fun, fungal or bacterial, whatever it is. We have a biofilm, a societal, congressional, need I say, biofilm that has been built around our food systems. It's now our time with technology and the simplicity of regeneration and the power of smartphones 
and our voices, to eat that biofilm away and actually focus on the problem at hand. And it's going to happen and kiss the ground. This is the first installment of something that is going to be so evolutionary, not revolutionary, that I literally get up every morning with a smile on my face, knowing that these are very dark times, but what's coming down the pipeline with the amount of work that you are doing, Finney, and all of us are doing, but who knew that when we launch Regenerate America, it would be the single most difficult thing in the world to explain to people? Because people want to know about something that's happening in their own neighborhood, or hey, how is this? this isn't localized? It's too big. It's all about policy, because no one wants to hear about policy. So we, gotta, we had to bring it back down to small conversations, to getting into people's hearts, where they realize that policy dictates everything. So we got this. And I just want to take this two seconds to thank you. Thank everyone in this room. And thank you, Rylan. And thank you, Finian. And thank you, Donaga. And thank you to this amazing organization called Kiss the Ground. And to thank Josh and Rebecca Tickell and Darius. And for like this team never stopped. It took seven years to make this film. I shot the initial footage of this film 11 and a half years ago in Zimbabwe. Yeah. This has been an extraordinary journey. And the odd thing is, although we're so exhausted and these lines around my eyes and the gray hairs, I'll tell you, but it's just the beginning. Mm. And we finally caught that little bit of steam. Like we just got enough steam in the engine. It's now starting to turn. And here we go, baby. Here we go. So happy to be here with you, man. yeah, thank everyone for uh, for being a part of this. And of course, you know, if you can support Kiss the Ground, there is no more worthy cause. Simply and so, um, you know, please lend your support to this organization that is the tip of the spear around this movement for regeneration. And really, um, this is not just about agriculture per se, though that is a huge part of it, but regeneration, it's really not a noun, it's a verb. You can apply it to almost anything. (laughs) And so you can gauge every day, am I working towards a regenerative life or a degenerative life, a constructive life or a deconstructive life? Mm. And we know in in the deepest part of our hearts that planetary health, soil health, human health, sociocultural health are all connected. All connected. And, uh, and the Buddha taught us this 2,500 years ago with that, an electron microscope. Um, and he- <laughs> Just threw that one. Yeah. He had um, a vision uh, of the world that is encapsulated in this image called Indra's net, which is a web, a spider web, if you will, that extends forever. And at the intersection uh, of each joint is a crystalline diamond that reflects every other intersection. Wow. And I often... Wow. Yeah. Incredible. 
we are, each and every single one of us, sitting within this mutually interdependent web. We are that crystalline drop of water or and that we crystalline diamond. Each other. And that's it. And we reflect each other. And I think that this movement towards regeneration is not just about soils and human health and planetary health. It's about a, a seismic spiritual shift from feeling like a separate human being living in a ex separate external universe, separate from each other, separate from nature, separate from anything divine, and a realization of our true mutual interconnectedness. We are the same biological yeah. process. And I know it's true and it's easy to grasp because even my five-year-old knows it. <laughs> Probably more look than at, anyone. If you look at the world, and thank you for saying that, if you think about this, the trees of the earth are the lungs that filter air. The great oceans, seas, and river systems are those vast cardiovascular systems carrying all the nutrients to the organism. Now, if you cut all the trees and you pollute and dam the water systems, what ultimately ends up happening? The organism starts to die, and we are that same biological process. So it's not about having people separate from nature. It's about people, we are the same biological process. And like you just mentioned, the similar thing, and I didn't get to mention this before, but you spoke about it, Vinian. The gut microbiome of the human being is directly related to the health of that human being and the mental health of that human being. The exact same way that the soil microbiome is directly related to the health of soil, the plant, and everything that lives off of it. These are not parallels. These are intersections. These are interconnected touch points. So once people realize that, whether you live in a flat in New York City or you live on a farm in the Bay Area or in Iowa, we're connected the same way by our choices. And that's the beautiful thing. Thank you for saying it so beautifully. But like, how are we in a space where we spend so much money on healthcare, but we have no understanding that mental health and the problems that we're having right now are a direct result of poor health through food. Yeah. <laughs> How do you That's not it. know that? So bringing this all together, thank you, man. Oh, thank you. Thank and you, brother. And let's go sit around the table, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you. What a, yeah, what a treat. And listen, I say, this, I say this with all, nothing but, oh. Oh, that's yours, I guess. Uh, this organization, we need your support. We need to put it in practice, all of these elements, and we are doing it. So I am super grateful for however generous you can be to make this happen. We spend our lives doing this, and we know it's the only life that we can live. So I, I thank you in advance. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, I speak for all of us. Um, help us do this, please. All right. Okay, thank you for listening to my Kiss the Ground conversations about regenerative agriculture. Now, I really hope it inspired you to take action in whatever way you can, whether it's 
writing your congressperson about the farm bill, growing some herbs outside your window, or spreading the word on your Instagram. To learn more about Kiss the Ground and how you can support their important work, please visit them at kissetheground.com. And if your interest is piqued, you can also take Finian's commune course titled Soil is the Climate Solution. You can sign up for Finian's course for free for five days at onecommune.com slash soil. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you know how much effort that we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors and ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with criticism of the constructive variety. Uh, Jeff K at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Everfred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>